bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance zero-defect buildings are hard to find, Two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. Well, am I looking forward to this today? Now, you are going to jump down the rabbit hole here. This is the dark art of building envelope commissioning. A super That's niche right. on a niche on a niche squared, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. And today we are diving into the hardware section of building science, specifically the nuts and bolts of building envelope testing, also known to some as the building enclosure and to others the skin of the building. There's a debate right off the bat we can take on. And our guests are known for a thing or two about this specialty. Welcome to the show, Elliot Benor and James Fish. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So, Elliot, you founded and operate Building Envelope Testing, which is a metropolitan New York City-based side uh, testing lab. And, James, you head up the engineering lab and field tests. So, Mm -hmm. envelope or enclosure testing encompasses many fields of study. And let's face it, gentlemen, that uh, whatever defines the outside of the building, it has obviously many layers. But it affects thermal comfort, affects lighting, sound, odors, vibration, and air quality, and ultimately energy. So, it's a great business to be in. Elliot? Tell us what drove you into the business and what keeps you there, and how did James end up heading up your engineering team? Okay, so I was a window installer. I worked at a window company for a few years and wound up migrating over to the consulting side of the business. Worked for a a facade engineering firm called Israel Berger & Associates. Today, they're known as Vidaris. And I was a senior consultant there and got exposed to curtain walls, windows, facade 
elements in general. And I really, really enjoyed it. I think it's uh, it's an exciting business. It's very interesting. Just when you think you know it and understand it, you realize you don't. And it made me excited about doing it. And I continued to do it for a few years and then uh, was actually courted away by a Canadian curtain wall company from Toronto called Fulton Windows <laughs> and got to work with a, a man that people consider the grandfather of unitized curtain wall in Canada. His name is Werner Cloak. And I just got unbelievably good experience and gained so much knowledge from my time with him. And it really put me on the path to learning more. And learning more meant finding out more. So I was working in a testing lab after that for a couple of years. And that testing lab was acquired by a multinational corporation. And our arrangement didn't work out anymore and decided four years ago to start building envelope testing. James is a new hire. He's been with us for about six months now. Yeah, just about. about six months. And he's a graduate engineer and he's a brilliant guy who really understands heat transfer, thermodynamics, you name it. He's really great. And we're just trying to be better every day. We're just trying to do what we do as well as we can to a level that we're comfortable with, not necessarily a level that is acceptable, but we really, really do look beyond the norm and try to figure out why is this happening? Is this going to be a problem in the future? How can we do this better? And that's our focus at the company. Just to give our listeners an idea of your personality, the thing that attracted me to you guys as, as a potential guest on a podcast was your Facebook page. It says, if you build it, we will come. Then we will spray water on it for 15 minutes solid. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was I all was in at that one. point. <laughs> good, great. It worked then. You should trademark that and use that as a tagline for sure. I'll have to pay my wife then. She came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So this is an interesting field to be in when you think about, and I don't know, I can't remember what the statistics were, but something along the lines that most of the buildings that are going to, that we're going to need in the future, like up into the year, you know, 2050, already exist. And, you know, I mean, it's not to say that obviously new construction is going to continue on, but as far as inventory of buildings go, going into the future, most of the buildings that we exist. And like you guys know, most of those buildings suck big time. <laughs> so it's a field that's growing. What do you, where do you see the opportunities for you guys? It's an energy for us. I mean, we do quality control testing right now on air barrier, structural elements that connect the facade to the structure of the building, obviously windows and curtain wall, and a ton of other quality control and compliance tests, but energy is the future. Energy is the future, and it's the part that people least understand as far as how the facade of the building or the envelope interacts with the systems of the building and how critical it is to have a tight envelope in order to have mechanical engineers give them the ability to do their work properly. Yeah, when I used to do, when I was, used to do a lot more public speaking than I do now, one of the things I used to say when I had an audience of architects in front of me was, you as architects have the biggest influence over the mechanical systems in the building because your choices on facade and design elements affect the building load, right? And Absolutely. And a lot of them found it hard to grasp that because they were really only thinking of the aesthetics and, you know, it, in Vancouver at the time, you know, I need a glass box facing west. That was everything. 
that mentality is not just Vancouver no, mentality. It's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. So I want to, I'm a commission practitioner. I'm a fan of commissioning. For me, the best definition of commission is, is the Ronald Reagan, a Russian proverb that he used on the Russians, trust but verify, right? I trust someone to design it. I trust you to build it, but I'm going to verify it and make sure it works. And this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Because I have mixed feelings on envelope commissioning to do it properly. So there's two types of envelope commissioning people, the same way there's two types of commissioning people in general. There's the people in the nice suits with a nice haircut and lots of paperwork. They wander around site, checking boxes, shaking hands. They don't actually do anything. But boy, do they produce great reports, right? And then there's the actual testing, what I call technical commissioning, where there are some actual testing and there's involvement in the design process and there's a sort of a quality management element. You're actually managing some quality in the system, right? Now, the thing with this, this is the rub with envelope commissioning. If you get hired late, let's say I'm a developer, I see you at a conference, I think, I want some of this. So I hire you in. The job's half built. You come to site. You find all sorts of problems at the end where the roof meets the envelope, where, you know, envelope details. And the problem <laughs> is when you find a problem, it's not a $1,000 fix. It's a million dollar fix, right? And then all of a sudden, I have to fire you and pretend I didn't hire you because I can't face that. Is that something that's happened to you? Have I characterized? Every day. <laughs> Every single day. We deliver the bad news. Sometimes that bad news is greeted with, what do we do about it? And sometimes that bad news is greeted with, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. And, you know, it's it really, to us, it doesn't matter because we're either going to fix it today or we're going to fix it in three years when the next group buys that building and figures out that they have a problem. And once someone gets serious about fixing the poor quality control, and you mentioned quality management, that's what we consider ourselves. We consider ourselves quality assurance people. Mm -hmm. And we try to convince everybody, don't look at what we do and try to gain a pass-fail report. Look at what we do, especially on the mock-ups we do, because we, we do quite a few in-house and on-site mock-ups, and we tell everyone, this is your opportunity to figure out all the things you don't know. BIM, paper drawings, whatever you do until you touch it and put it together, you never know anything until you do that. And we're trying to deprogram people and convince them to look at this, look at what we do as a part of the process that will save the money in the long run. I like the fact that you were use the word deprogramming because everyone's yeah. in a cult, right? In my view, everything's a cult, right? The cult commissioning. Yeah. I mean, if you're an ABC, you're in that cult. But there is a cult of like uh, throw it up and walk away, right? And there's a deprogramming element to go with that. Absolutely. And part of that deprogramming stems from you know, the whole segregated design processes versus integrated design process. And then in the integrated design process, you know, you guys as an enclosure testing company, you ought to be at every design table, wherever there's a, in fact, every architect, you should be following every architect around. <laughs> you know, because when I, and Adam, you know this, when every time we come into a building that's got a, a problem, it's usually found after the fact. And I know like in the projects that we did, because we had an engineering practice, we always specified as part of our design enclosure testing prior to occupancy. And like, so we had stages of testing, right? When the clients were willing to spend the money and test the building as it was being built, you know, so we'd come up to a certain stage, we'd get it tested, you a few more steps, get it tested. So we were testing along the way. Those buildings were great. They didn't have the failures that the other buildings had. When the owner said, nope, not going to spend the money, right? A year later, two years later, they're on the phone going, 
building leaks, water damage. Customers are complaining, uncomfortable, right? So this deprogramming is part of the, well, the fact that it exists exists because there's segregated design, and we saw that with integrated design. So I don't know what you guys' comments are on that. Even the commissioning process is segregated because most commissioning agents don't do envelope testing. So we come in as a third-party agency to do the testing, and we try to convince everyone to look at us as a part of that QA process that the commissioning is meant to be. And like you said, we would love to be involved earlier in the process because, listen, not every project needs to be designed to the performance level of every other projects. And sometimes job conditions don't allow you to meet the performance you need. And there are ways to determine, is this going to be okay? Is this going to be enough? Is this, you know, were the requirements too stringent? Weren't they too stringent? And everyone's, of course, afraid to make a call on that. But we do physical testing so we can say it will work up to this. And that's, I think, another important part of it is to have the backstop to say, yes, theoretically, this is what we would like to have. But we didn't get it and we can't get it at this point. What are we okay to? And then understand that maybe you might have a problem in the future, but what's what's the risk? And we try to help people understand what's your risk when things don't go right. There's so many questions running around my head. I want to so I want to talk to you about what's going on in New York. I want to talk to you about UK versus USA practice, but what I really want to sort of bring it back to certifications. This is one of my pet peeves with commissioning. Last time I looked, I did I was paid to do some research a couple of years ago on certifications, commissioning certifications. And when I researched the US, there were 16 different certifications for commission. It's probably more now, right? These things are like weeds, they just grow. So what, in your opinion, let's get this out there first, is the premier building envelope commissioning certification? As far as, I don't even know. <laughs> There's so many BCX, you know, yeah. I don't even know who to mention anymore. We, it's just like the high performance building certifications that are out there, you know, yeah. lead, passive house. People ask me, what's the best? The best is the one that works. And I think it's the same thing with commissioning. Everybody's trying to put it into a checkbox, you know, check off the boxes and here's a standard form letter to send for this. And I don't think that works. Unfortunately, we don't invest in the next generation of architects and engineers. And our system in the U.S., I think, is bad because the uh, mentoring and uh, apprenticeship mentality that still exists in Europe doesn't exist here. We used to call architects master builders. When I started in this business, an architect was a master builder and literally could stand on the floor and lay out partition walls with the carpenters and check the carpenters layout. Today, that's all done in BIM. People don't have the hands-on experience. And unfortunately, you don't get the experience in this industry until you get the gray hair on top of the head. And that's not rewarded or valued in our industry as it should be either, because that's who mentors the younger people. And people can get certifications today pretty easily. That's a business like every other business, right? Mm. There's cost for membership, cost for certifications. We're sponsored by XYZ and we have a trade show or conference every year. That's what most people do. And I think, you know, it's good to have controls over people calling themselves a commissioning agent or a home inspector or a, a plumbing inspector. But at a certain point, if it's not controlled by some authority, whether it's the government 
or an industry trade organization, if it's not backed and controlled by one of those, it's hard to put any credibility in any of them, if you ask me. Well, that, I mean, that comes down to the difference between certification and qualified. You can, it's easy to get, well, it's relatively easy to become certified, mm. not so much to become qualified, you know, Correct. and that people don't understand the difference. And the challenge that, and I see the challenge there is a lot of these associations, and we all worked with them in the past, and we work with them in the future, you know, where they offer certifications. And we know, because I do some course development and teaching, that there are people that we certify, and we know they're walking out the door going, they're not qualified. They passed the exam, they took the course, they put in their time, but I would never hire them to do a design of my own stuff, right? So mm-hmm. you're right, we have a problem. And the problem is, is that we can certify people and they can get the ticket and they can get the permission to go do their practice, their, their art, but they're not qualified. And that is, that is a problem. If you look at the field of professional engineers, architects, whatever, you know, there's a four, well, it's James, you're there. You, you had to go to school four years. There's a four-year articling period. There's an exam in the U.S. to get your PNs or PE, I guess, out in the U.S., right? There's, yeah. And then there's, there's all the liability insurance that goes along with that. But if James screws up, and you know this, James, as a professional, you screw up, your professional licensing association, they're going to haul you in front of a review board. And if you've been a bad boy, they're going to spank you. They're going to take your license away and tell you to go back to school and take some courses again or maybe have to write another exam, right? Yeah. (laughs) So that's one of the differences because we do have people out in the industry who are certified. They don't have the education. They don't have the field experience. And Elliot, like you said, there's no body overseeing them saying, you know what, if you are a bad boy or a bad girl, you're going to get slapped, but you're not going to lose your ability to make a dollar. You can go out and change your company name, and next week you're running the same business again. Absolutely. Now, that's interesting because what you've defined there very succinctly, I think, is the difference between the difference, in my opinion, from what I just heard there. Now I think about it, it's crystal clear. The difference between certification and qualification is probably practitioner experience, but also it's accountability, right? There's accountability with licensing and with certification, there's a lot less accountability, right? There can be consequences, but there's not accountability. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that for us is industry involvement. So James came on board and we, it's not a requirement, but we strongly urge everyone who comes into the company to become active in the industry organizations that set standards like ASTM mm. or AMA and the Windows side or ABA. And we would like to have people participate in standards development, know what's going on, know what's new, and also to see, to separate the wheat from the chaff because every organization needs to have a financial element to it. But they all usually do some good work as well. And, you know, we try to concentrate on that and less on the business side of it because we don't really sell a product, right? We're a service provider in Mm, the end. Absolutely. And we don't have something to promote generally because we don't necessarily do the same service from one day to the next. So it's really defined by our clients and specified within normal standards, but it puts us in a little bit unique position. So one of the things I want to get out of this podcast is to put out there for people what actually a good, proper, thorough, value-added commissioning envelope experience is. But before we do that, I want to talk about the difference between quality management versus quality assurance, right? So I'll give you my understanding, then you tell me if I'm smoking the wrong weed here, right? So quality management for me is the ability to manage quality into a project at next to no cost, right? So just think about 
the difference between design phase versus construction phase. Anything pretender, if you guys look at a drawing and change a detail, add in this, take out that, that's a value add. That's a, that's ma- quality being managed in. If you do a mock-up at a factory and test that detail and know it works, that's quality added in. That's risk taken out of the construction side, right? The minute you go post-tender and you're in construction, you're in quality control the, or assurance. The only thing you can contribute from a quality point of view is, does it comply with the documents, yes or no, right? Is that a fair summary? I think it is in 2020, you know, with schedules the way they are and ability the way it is. I think that's absolutely true. In the old days, people would deal with a delay that was caused. I just had this experience this morning. I had to inform our client that after we did a mock-up of a a VTAC unit in a wall, that they had to, we had to redefine their sequence of work for the waterproofing of the wall and the coordination with the VTAC sleeve, pan under the VTAC to meet what they wanted, which was a building that doesn't leak. And they weren't happy about it. And I felt bad delivering that news. But I said, guys, the reality is, if we handle this quickly, and we're proactive and pragmatic about it, it won't have a tremendous impact on your schedule. And I think that's what people, people panic. And that's another problem with quality control, is the first reaction is, there's a problem. What's that going to do to my schedule? We don't know yet, but it's going to really impact you forever if you don't take care of it during construction. So yeah, you're right. I think in 2020, you don't have the ability to make the changes once you begin construction because the system just doesn't allow for it anymore. Agreed. The other thing I want to leave people with once I listen to this episode is that on building envelope commissioning is not a paperwork exercise. And that's really implied in lead, in my opinion, right? So I have a love-hate relationship with lead and lead commissioning. It's awesome because it's raised the profile of commissioning, but boy, does it suck in parts. And if you're from the Green Building Council, I'd love to have you on here and debate this with me. But <laughs> the point is this. If you, most clients I know that go down the lead rabbit hole, they think building envelope commissioning is three or four strategic bits of paper with the right signature on. No one goes around site. And heaven forbid someone actually suggests a change or something doesn't work. That person is out of that job quicker than shit through a goose, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So it's a tough sell. You're in a tough business. There's no question about it, right? But you're in a highly value-add business. Now, interestingly, the UK have built into their building code, building pressurization tests, which is sort of building envelope testing by default, right? So to get an occupancy permit there and meet building code, there is a point in construction where you have to pressurize that building and test it for leakage. So they go, yeah. like, there's a gross leakage rate you've got to meet per square foot or meter, rather, and it's all good, all bad. And I love that because that's a pass or fail. No one's going in that building without it. Everyone's on board because they have to be. That works. Now, in New York, where you are, they've gone a slightly different route, right? There's been legislation recently, particularly with regard to existing buildings. Can you tell our listeners about that? Bearing in mind, a lot of our listeners are international. Sure. So New York City in April of 2019 passed what I call the cornerstone of the Climate Mobilization Act. It's known as Local Law 97. And basically, it's a law that sets carbon caps for any building over 25,000 square feet. And it uh, sets it by size of the building and use of the building. So it just follows pretty much the building code norms for types of buildings. And Basically, you're allowed a certain amount of carbon emissions 
based on all the energy coming into the building. And that's important because most people think and most people thought at the beginning that this was just operating energy. So the energy it takes to heat and cool and light the building. And that is incorrect. It's every watt going into the building. It's all the energy. It's the energy for plug loads, compressors, boilers, everything is counted. It was thought that it would, people didn't understand it at first and really didn't know how to react to it. But it makes a lot of sense because there were, for the last five years, there's been a bunch of other Climate Mobilization Act laws that have been passed that are in support of this law. So there was sub-metering laws passed so that we can determine what plug loads are in a building instead of just saying to the owner, you have to estimate how much your tenants are using. So now we actually have a meaningful administrative code law that trumps the building code. It trumps the energy code and says, this is how much we're going to allow you to have. And when you go beyond that, you have to pay a fine. So where the building code comes in, you mentioned building pressurization or whole building air leakage testing. And ATMA is the agency in the UK that's done an unbelievably good job of defining criteria and training and promoting, not just in the UK anymore, but in Europe in general. And we love them. That's one part of what helps you achieve these low energy buildings or low emissions buildings. So air leakage, of course, we talked about it, is a major factor, but there are many. And unfortunately, the model that we've been using to design buildings and even high performance buildings like lead buildings has been using incorrect tools for the design. And it's not the fault of the engineers, the architects, or even these, you know, ABC organizations that set the standards for high performance. We just haven't caught up with the science or or people who have been setting these standards didn't really understand the science behind what's an R value and what's a U value. And thank God building modeling, energy modeling of buildings has really started to take hold here and in Canada. And it's very, very important. Unfortunately, we feel the building energy modeling software that's being used needs some work. We think it uses, again, some of the wrong tools to determine whether or not a building is going to meet the goals that have been set. And you can see that because you mentioned LEED. Most people don't go back and confirm whether or not they met their LEED targets for energy usage. And I think that's telling. (laughs) This new law forces everyone it's benchmarks. So one of the other climate mobilization acts, Local Law 87, was the benchmarking law that was enacted five years ago. It was one of the first. And it said you have to submit your energy bills for the building. You have to submit a report that shows the size and use of the building. All the things that now they're using as the metric for limiting the carbon. For five years, building owners in New York City had the voluntary responsibility to report those numbers so that the city could amass the data. And it's all about big data. And they did. And they came up with literally a map of energy usage in buildings. And that's what they used to determine the carbon caps, or it was one of the factors they used to determine the carbon caps. It was really how they determined the schedule for meeting the Paris Climate Agreement goals that were set and the C40 goals. Yes, the U.S. is not signed on to Paris, but New York is one of the C40 cities. I'm proud to say, and and Mike Bloomberg 
and I'll probably get a million people hating me on LinkedIn for saying this, but I really, really, my hat's off to the former mayor of New York City for really standing behind the C40 cities. And anyone who doesn't know about it should find out about it. It's real important. And this is the model for the C40 program to give people a blueprint for how to bring their cities into compliance for emissions. Well, I've got to say, shout out to New York there. And of all yeah, the places no, in America where you think this might not happen. <laughs> <laughs> and politically, it really was pushed by a Republican mayor and really a Democratic mayor from opposite sides of the political spectrum. Wow. And the city council came together on it, wow. knowing that this is their future. This is their future, their children's future, and their children's children's future. And, you know, people can say climate change doesn't exist all they want, but, you know, the evidence seems to be pretty evident. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, yeah, kudos to uh, New York and the people of New York and your political systems. The fact that you could get opposing sides to come together says a lot. And it really can be a, a, a model for other cities across the continent, really. If New York can do it, God, every other community should be able to do it. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. I mean, you just think about it. Logistically, how many people live in New York and the, and the outer areas? What's the, what are you guys up to now? Do you know? Eight. Eight or nine million, right? My kids Eight live in New York. Yeah. And my Eight. grandkids will be New Yorkers, so I'm very interested in this subject. <laughs> right. And that's the official census. But during the day, it's probably more like 11. Yeah. Because people from, you know, other places commute to work here. So, yeah. So what I'm getting at is that and people need to understand that is that during the daytime population in New York, it represents about a third of Canada's entire population in one city. Right. <laughs> right. That's great stuff. <laughs> Concentrated on one island. On one island. You can't tell me that if that kind of logistical nightmare, you know, the management of New York. The infrastructure in New York, you know, which represents, again, like a huge population base. If you guys can do it, us here in Calgary with a million point, one point three million, whatever it is. Adam, what's in Toronto? What's the population uh, of Toronto? Uh, GTA is just under four million, I think now, yeah. which for Canada is huge. But for America, right. that's a mid-sized city, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. So we can learn a lot from what New York has done. And, you know, hats off to you guys. And hopefully we have political voices that listen to the podcast, that, that they can see that as a you know motivation to look at their own backyard and say, well, we can do this too. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time. And now, back to the show. I want to give a shout out to America, actually, because 
There's a lot of BS going around at the moment, but even though America's withdrawn from Paris Accords, the cities have taken up the mantle and America yeah. as a whole still complies with that, right? Absolutely. Whether you're in or out, you're still doing it, right? And yep, absolutely. I don't know if you remember, Robert, when we had uh, Saeed El Adabar on, he's the, uh, he was a chairman of the United Arab Emirates Green Building Council. He said all the innovation and action is going to happen at the city level and he was on the money with that. Yeah, totally bang on. Yeah, totally bang on. I'm actually not disappointed that it didn't happen on a federal level and it's happening on a city level because that's where the changes need to happen. Yeah. It needs to be on the ground. You know, everyone has their own opinion about it. I think this model is going to work much better than us taking it on as a country because it is a unique country. You know, Francis, four major urban areas. The scale of things in the United States are so different than anywhere else other than maybe China, yeah. that it doesn't make sense for us to do things on a federal level. It really makes sense to do it this way. I couldn't agree. I think the city level is where you can be nimble, you can get things moving, and you can have immediate impact. And that's the why it's happening that way. So kudos on that. So the other thing I want to ask James Fish about is, as a yeah. professional engineer, energy models, art, bullshit, or science? Pick one. <laughs> <laughs> that was unfair, uh, right? Which one. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 some of them are bullshit, but are based on science. They're supposed to be. Yeah. You know, the guys at Berkeley National Laboratory who developed like the Department of Energy modeling software, they're really, they're genius guys. Yeah. And they really knew the science and they really built the engine, you know, back in like the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. But the way it's evolved after it left the lab is just, it totally turned around. You know, I, we're really getting stuck right now on like single factor rating systems when it comes to like rating the, the thermal transmittance of a window. It's, it's what we refer to as a U value or yeah. U factor. And listen, I have my, my heat transfer textbook in my office right there, and I can pull out the page with the equation where the U value comes from. But I'm here to tell you, it's like you can't use it that way. You know, that's like, it's, it's a snapshot of one set of conditions mm. and only one. Yep. If you change the conditions or you change the material, you do something else, all of a sudden that U value goes straight out the window. And this is what, uh, you know, it's what I came in for. This is what I'm really interested in. You know, just because you buy the best window with the best U value doesn't mean, you know, your whole building is going to actually like reduce energy or that it's going to reduce energy enough or save energy enough to meet local law 97. And what I'm interested in is actually looking at the science and getting back to the science. You know, we're a laboratory. We want to look at the science like the guys at, you know, Berkeley National Lab and bring it to New York City and the New Yorkers and really like, you know, try to get them the real numbers. You know, we want a quantitative analysis, yeah. less qualitative analysis. So instead of a rating system where you could compare one window to another, or, to another. Or one insulation to another. Yeah, or one type of insulation to another. We want to get the actual numbers that are on the buildings right now and test it and verify, like you were saying before, Adam. We want to, you know, we trust the numbers, but we really want to verify them. Well, that's, that was a great answer to my uh, setup question there. Yeah. Well done. Because what you're saying, really, the way I'd summarize what you just said is, and I can see your passion in how you're doing it, actually, is it's the system that matters, right? It is the sum of the parts. Two plus two equals eight sometimes, and two plus two can equal three sometimes, most of the time in our buildings, right? And, mm. you know, the benefit proposition from commissioning and integrated design and systems thinking is two plus two can be six. 
right? You mm-hmm. systemize things. You get the performance from the net overall. And just to close the uh, energy modeling software thing, I do, again, love-hate relationship, right? I think it's about 70% science and the rest of it is artistic license. Art. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, so there's two types of energy modelers and I'm happy for an energy model to come on and debate us on this. In my view, there's engineers who don't know how to use the software properly. And then there's software jockeys who don't understand buildings. And there's a Venn diagram. And when them two places meet, that's energy modeling that done properly, right? Yes, precisely. (laughs) But you know what, Adam, we're, we believe in the model because even as imperfect as it is today in 2020, at least people are starting to get it that there's no other way to build a building in the future. We have to improve the model and we have to have better numbers to plug into the model. We have to use the right instrument to measure, but without a model, it's going to be impossible over the next five years to build a building, impossible, or a compliant building. Yeah, compliant building. That's the correct terminology there, actually. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I know like even in our own practice, and this is it. Well, again, going back to qualified versus certified and experience and the gray hairs, you know, our job is the senior members of the engineering firms that we would look at the numbers that the young engineers would produce on the computer. And, you know, usually within 30 to 45 seconds, I could look at the numbers and go, that's bullshit. That's those numbers aren't, those don't work, you know? And so- you know, there was a, a Professor Bomberg who was a brilliant guy. He taught at the University of Saskatchewan, and he said, you should never sit down and use a computer until you know what the answer is. You let the computer do the work, but the answer you should already know. And that has always stuck with me. I always thought that was a brilliant piece of advice. And in fact, when we hired engineers, and Adam, you know this because I told the story before, when we hired engineers out of school, they would get really pissed at us because we would not let them touch the computer. We made them do the hand calculations for the first six months. And it would drive them crazy. But you know what? At the end of those six months, they had an intimate knowledge of the numbers. And they became actually better engineers by having to go through the old way of doing stuff. So I, I like models. I think models are useful, but there's a lot to be said about experience and there's a lot to be said about, and James, you, like you said, go into your book and pull out the formula. That formula, the, although it may not represent what you're actually seeing in the field, what is happening in the field is a representation of the formula. It just, it's, but it requires several integrations of that formula for the frame, edge glass, center of the glass. In, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Right. So the science and the formula works. It's just that you have to integrate it at many steps within the enclosure. Yeah. And we're trying to take it a little beyond that because we're questioning the energy inputs because like Therm and most of the mm. product specific modeling software right now, really only and even hotbox measurements, the physical measurements yep. we do, they really only account for air to air heat transfer. Right. And there's other things that really do affect heat flow through a body like convection, the wind, and solar radiation. You know, we did a presentation a couple of weeks ago, and we said, you know what? The color of your window is going to affect your U-value drastically, more drastically than you think. And everyone thought we were crazy, but we explained why, that if you have a dark-colored window, it's going to absorb more solar radiation during any sunny Mm -hmm. times. Yep. And there are times during the year that that might help you, but most of the time in an office building, it's going to hurt you. And this is a big thing. And, you know, there's just, we need to start looking at everything. Aluminum is probably most common commercial fenestration framing material there is out there. It's probably also one of the worst 
conductors or the best conductors yeah, yeah, of yeah, any yeah, material yeah. On, the, on the planet. Yeah. And although it has all these other great properties that make it an ideal building material, on one hand, it's got very lousy thermal properties on the other hand. And this is not a knock at aluminum. We love aluminum. I'm not saying not to use aluminum. But we have to think about how we design these things better. I was at a conference a few weeks ago and people were talking about thermal bridging at steel studs on a building with exterior insulation and thermal bridging through fasteners. And I'm like, guys, that's so the whole all of them in the whole building are so inconsequential when you compare it to the heat loss through one fenestration opening. You're spending immense amounts of time on this and thermally broken rain screen cladding clips and all the rest that, you know, if you look at the big picture and you look at it, and this is the most important, with the proper baseline properties, because if you're going to do a building energy model and you're going to use negative 30C as your winter conditions for half the year, yeah, you're going to really show heat loss through these thermal bridges as being a great detriment. But how often does that actually happen? What 5% of the year. Yeah. What percentage of the hours are you actually getting that much cold air on the outside of the building? It's just people aren't looking at this sensibly. Yeah. The, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're right. The infiltration, exfiltration is a big factor. And then that, the solar gain and the, the, the net mm-hmm. glass, right, is what it's about. Yeah, we yeah. used to have a rule of thumb back in the day when I was at a design firm where, you know, you want lead platinum and you're residential, the first words out of my mouth is 45% of that facade maximum is going to be glazed, at which right. point maximum. everybody wants to not talk to you anymore at that point, right? It's like, it's heresy. But that is yeah. the well, fact. Glass is cheap, so the owners of the buildings love it, and every architect loves glass. So it's you're in a very unpopular... Mechanical engineers are generally the least popular guys in our meetings yeah, because they're talking reality to people, and everyone yep. else wants to talk, you know, fantasy. So one of the things I want to people to leave this podcast with is a real idea of what real value-added building envelope commissioning looks like. So let me tell you what my shtick is when I'm telling people about it, right? So I always say, one, if you're hiring any commissioning professional, particularly build an envelope, you need to hire them during the design phase, right? And this is why. Real building envelope commissioning, not lead building envelope commissioning, looks like this. It's not paperwork. It's input into design details, review of design submittals. It is a factory mock-up and agreeing a systemized approach, right? With all the details, there's a modeling aspect to it, energy modeling aspect to it, right? Then in yep. construction, so that's your quality management side handled, right? You've probably spent between 30 and 50 grand at that point, at which point people lose interest when I start talking. Right? And then you get into construction phase. A construction phase, then you're talking about intermittent, at least two or three construction inspections where you're, if there is a install or a um, detail going in incorrectly, you can pick it up early. Because if you pick any of these faults up late, it's thousands and hundreds of thousands, right? It's not like me finding the filters in the air handling unit wrong. We're talking about facade changes here, right? So you, all this has to be done early. And then what you're getting at the end is a verification, you know, some thermal imaging, you're doing some testing. That really is the 10% of it. Let's call, take the 80-20. It's the 20% of it, right? You're memorializing and verifying the work you've done earlier has been effective. 
But the 80% where order value is, is in the design phase and the construction inspections and the factory mock-up. So do you agree or disagree with that? Because that's why I tell people. Absolutely. And the only things I would add to it is, I think people have this concept that the building commission people are standalone. And there can be a, a great deal of cooperation and effectiveness and cost savings if the contracting side and the owner side participate in some of that quality management or the quality assurance. Because we tell people this all the time on facade testing. There's the old I'm a hose test that everyone's seen, the nozzle, and we spray the water on the mullions. And everyone's asking me, well, do you guys recommend doing it? And do you have a problem with other than a lab doing it? And I said, that's not a test. If you read the standard, I'm a 501.2, so there's a quality assurance guide. It's not a test. And that means anyone can do it and everyone should do it at different stages of the project. And it's the same thing with mechanical commissioning, envelope commissioning, This stuff needs to be looked at more or less constantly today because, you know, who even knew what an ERV was 15 years ago? (laughs) Who knew what fiber cement panels were 20 years ago? They they didn't exist. And today they're commonplace. And really, we haven't had the we haven't developed that tribal knowledge to know Mm. from the rule on the back of your neck. That's going to work or that's not going to work. Like Robert said before, you can look at it in 15 minutes, find all the holes in the drawings and the calculations because, well, we've seen that happen before. And we just haven't seen the failures enough in a lot of the new materials and equipment to have that tribal knowledge to be able to look at it and say, this is a good material. doesn't work this way. EFS is a very good example. Yeah. Right. Everyone has an opinion about it. We think it's a good material when it's applied and installed and specified correctly, but that doesn't happen anywhere near enough. And there's more than just that system. That system is on a structural backup element. And we've recently made some interesting findings during mock-up testing that a lot of the failures that people blame on the EFS systems are actually a failure of the structural backup wall causing the EFS to fail. So there was a coordination issue there. And maybe that would have come through on a quality management overview that wasn't done. And again, we need more of that experience, experiential knowledge to be able to define what's happening, but that's what we really see our role in these projects is trying to make sure that we pick these things up as we go, because we're not designers, we're not inspectors, we're not, you know, engineers. We just, I tell people all the time, I just spray water on windows, but when you do it enough, you know what to look for because you've seen a hundred leaks. I like your saying tribal knowledge. I think I might have to steal that from you for future presentations. You got it. Send me some Tim Hortons and it's yours. <laughs> you know, going back to facade changes, I just want to bring up this one story because it had a, it's a good illustration of what happens when you sit down with a client. And this, this happened to us. We sat down with a client over a year period of designing the building. So we spec'd out the enclosure. We were responsible for everything that had to do with the enclosure. And we also did the mechanical systems and everything was signed, sealed and delivered. We had a great big group hug at the end of saying, okay, fine, you know, let's get this done. And we had obviously scheduled inspections over the construction process. I did an unscheduled inspection. I was just actually out in the neighborhood. I thought, you know, I'm going to drop in and see what's going on with this project. I get out there and they're installing the windows and I'm going, 
guys, where's the external insulation on this project? Because we had specified two inches of exterior insulation on it. And the guy that's installing the window, he says, well, my understanding is, is that the owner and our boss had a discussion that we were going to remove all of the insulation. And I said, oh, my God, you guys have no idea what you've just done, right? So immediately I get on my cell phone, I talk to the owner, I said, so, like, what happened? He goes, yeah, we just decided it wasn't going to be worth it. So for the next couple of hours, I had to explain to him what he just did, that one decision by dropping the external insulation. And what ended up happening, of course, is we had to redesign the complete mechanical system. The first mechanical system was an elegant system, one temperature, one boiler, one pump. It was just beautiful. It was going to operate at its maximum efficiency. Then making that one decision on the facade turned the system into a complexity nightmare. And so instead of paying for exterior insulation, now we had to take that same amount of money, put it in the mechanical system. The insulation, you know, once it's in, it's in. It doesn't require any psychology, no. right? You don't have to go back and fix it. You don't have to, you know, cajole it to tell it to perform properly. You have to feed it fuel or electricity. When he dropped the facade insulation or the exterior insulation, made the system more, mechanical system more complexity. Now he's scrapped that building, that great big building with a complex mechanical system that's going to need gas and electrical for the rest of its life. And it's going to need therapy every year. New contractors going to come in and have to try to fix it, right? Oh, yeah. and, and probably specialty operators all year long. Yeah, right? And so it's you can't mess with this stuff. You guys know that when, you, when you're part of a design team and you can get something that is simple and elegant and, it, and when it gets assembled the way it's supposed to be assembled, those buildings are beautiful buildings. They're beautiful for, yeah, they're beautiful for the occupants. They're beautiful for the owners. They're beautiful for the people that manage them. And they're a delight to have as part of our society, as far as our inventory of architecture. But when the buildings are bad, oh my God, it's like having a zit on your face that just won't go away. <laughs> Obviously, we have tons of horror stories about buildings that can't be occupied Hotels that have rooms that can't be rented, condos that have units that aren't capable of being sold. Yeah. It's just that that's the forensic and investigative side of our business. But, you know, unfortunately, I wish and I'm surprised to hear about the insulation in Canada because we always look at Canadian codes and the Canadian building industry as understanding air barriers and insulation a bit better than we do in the States because, I mean, it's been the law and it's been common practice in Canada for a lot longer than it has been here. But I'm really shocked and not shocked to hear that. But in the States, continuous insulation, air barrier continuity, these are new terms that really just started being talked about with the 2016 or 15 version of the Energy Conservation Code. And it was forced on people. And you, know, you talked about air building pressurization testing. It's actually the law in the United States now, too, hmm. in every state. I mean, every residential home needs to be tested in order to get a CFO. It's not being enforced because, again, we just haven't had the time for the inspectors and the plan examiners and everyone to, to know that this is a requirement or even know what the test is. Yeah. And it's going to be a growth industry. One of the things I hate is my phone is always flashing with an eBay notification that there's a blower door for sale for $1,000. And I always say, wow, that sucks because it's another guy with good intentions that decided to get into building performance, spent quite a bit of money on equipment and discovered that there isn't enough work out there to keep that business going. And it's the same story every time I buy one because 
we just need to do a better job and really stop hanging plaques on the outside of buildings and start talking about the real performance bottom line. Like you said, Adam, air leakage, it's all about air leakage. It's all about transmittance. (laughs) You don't have to buy a specific product to build a tight home or a tight building. You just have to be quality conscious and then check as you go. That's it. I'm holding a a comb gauge. It's a 59 cent piece of aluminum. It checks the wet film thickness of a liquid applied air barrier. We give these out for free at every job we go to because we haven't seen anyone yet on a job site using one. That's hilarious. That's interesting, though. The legislation is in place for this testing, right? So at some point that will get tied up and people will start applying it, right? As this Absolutely. whole sort of environment, as more environmental awareness comes on, I hate using the word climate change because it's such a nebulous big thing. People feel powerless, right? If you talk, spoke about economic degradation and pollution, people can understand that. However, coin that term, need to slap around the face, quite frankly. But interesting though, the other thing that was interesting here you say is that, you know, the things we're talking about are relatively new terms to America. I worked in America for a year back a long time ago. I did Terminal 4, Commission Terminal 4, JFK. And when I arrived there, fresh... <laughs> we have guys at JFK today. All right, yeah. So, yeah, I'm denying everything at this point. But <laughs> when I first got there, like, I'm fresh off the boat from England, right? I'm fob from England. Get off there. And someone said to me, so Adam, a bit of advice, first day here. There's another Brit who'd been there like two years. He said, look, everything in America, 50% of everything is awesome and 50% of it really sucks. And it's not what you think because it... People's idea of the U.S. is what they see on TV, right? Everyone's in a four-bedroom house with a nice SUV. Everyone's nice and everything's working great. And it's just not quite like that, right? It's sort of like that, but not like that. (laughs) And I was personally shocked at the standard of construction. And it's interesting hearing you say that as an American because I agree with you. you. It did suck and it's starting to suck less at the moment, right, is how I would describe the construction industry in the U.S. I think that's a great description. It's sucking less every day. <laughs> and I, FYI, I am a big fan of the US. Two of my kids are American. My grandkids are going to be American. I am not any American. I just tell it how I see it. And it was a shocker for me. I Because, you know, you guys speak English. Everything looks like stuff I know. And I get there and nothing's how I know it. It was really, took me two or three months to really tune in to what was going on. Yeah, yeah I don't what was it like driving on the wrong side of the road when you came over? Oh, that, that, was, that was the least of my problems. That was the least of my problems. <laughs> you know, and you're right. Climate change, it's a hot topic. But whether it's climate change, less dependence on oil, foreign oil, whatever people want to say, or just old-fashioned cheap like me, yeah. why do I want to spend money on something that I see no return on? And energy efficiency You know, we can develop, depending on who you listen to, there's either going to be enough solar and wind to support our growth or there won't be. But the easiest and most effective way that we can turn the energy balance the other way is by conservation and becoming more efficient. And whether or not you feel it in your pocketbook, your politics, or the back of your neck when you're sitting there watching TV in the living room and you feel a draft. It's something that we need to look at and stop fighting over and just accept that it's not going away. And no matter what you call it or what your feelings are about it, it's real. It exists and we need to do something about it. I'm convinced the answer is twofold. It is nuclear energy at scale. No one wants to hear that, but that's the truth. I hear it more and more these days. And 
it is using less, doing exactly what New York City is just doing, right? It doesn't have to be painful, but it has to happen. So you're going to get a choice, right? It can be forced on you or you can do what New York's doing and get in front of it. That's how I see it. But you know, anyway, we're coming up on 50 minutes, so we're coming up towards the end. What we do at the end is Robert and I ask a rapid-fire question. I'll go first if you want, Robert, I'll just because I just thought one here because this is one of yeah. my bete noirs. <laughs> so what advice – so if I'm listening to this, you know, I'm a young graduate, I listen to this podcast, I think, wow, this might be the place for me. You know, I'm, I'm interested in energy conservation. This is a niche. You know, when you get into a niche, if you do it right, you can earn money. So what advice – how does someone, let's say I'm a mechanical engineer, I've just graduated and I want to come in here. How do I get into your business and how do I become good at it? You want to feel that one or should I? And don't well, say you work for I me. Think, <laughs> I think the best thing to do is, you said it before, don't rely too much on technology first. Technology is a tool, right? So you, mm. you really do need to know the basics and how to do, because that really gives you a better understanding of just plugging numbers into a spreadsheet or a, an app and learning how to do things by hand. Some of the best mechanical engineers I know never heard of Woofy, will never do Woofy. They do it by hand. They sit there and do it by hand. And yes, it's not as pretty, but I think it's it's an important thing. So really mentor with somebody who has that experience before they're gone. I did it. I'm happy. I'll never regret spending the time I did with Werner Cloak, who I mentioned before, because the knowledge I gained from him has taken me, I'm standing on his shoulders every day. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, James, here's a question for you. Well, actually for both of you guys, I have a niece who just graduated from New York architectural school. And as you know, in, in, in that world, there's a can be a fairly high turnover rate. There's a lot of pressure on architects these days. What advice do you have for the young architects designing buildings based on what you know about buildings that have failed? Uh, Sweat the small details. (laughs) Yeah, really be detail-oriented and detail-focused. You know, I'm, you know, you're not going to like what I'm going to say, but I'm I'm really a professional engineer, not an architect. So I, I can't say for sure. I only, you know, I know my experience in engineering. So, you know, it's a lot different. I'm more into the science. I'm more into like, the actual design and the building, not really, it's not exactly the same thing as architecture. And I'm so sorry, but really like, you know, focus on getting like a nice, like a good job. When you're looking for architecture firms to try to work for, or she's looking for architecture firms, you know, look at their pictures, look at their buildings, go visit them if you can see them and just see how they are, you know? Be passionate. Yeah, be passionate about it. Like, look at them, you know, what stands out to you? Don't just like look for getting another you know, high stress, you know, desk job where you're drawing lines all day <laughs> yeah. with the high turnover rate, as, uh, as you mentioned, you know, really get passionate you know, about it. I think the best advice is the one you gave before, Robert, that, you know, one thing affects the other, affects the other. It's dominoes. Yeah. They remove the insulation. It affects the mechanical systems. I'm sure that also required increasing duct work. And there were a million issues with running pipes, duct, electrical work. So just making one change, people think this change doesn't affect anything. We're just pulling the column back 10 inches. What can it do? It can do a lot. (laughs) I've I've, I've seen that movie. I've lived that movie. (laughs) Yep. So just remember the dominoes. That's what I 
help young people. I think you nailed it with the sweat, the small details. That is a great way to describe uh, Build an Envelope Commission at Design Stage, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's what we do every single day. <laughs> it wouldn't be a business if we didn't look at every little detail and not let something go. And we find, and I have to say, I'm always proudest when we find our errors, because when we find the mistake that we've made or have been making and come up with a way to correct it, it means we're getting better. And I think that's the key for us to be effective in the future is to constantly, constantly get better at what we do. Okay. So look, we're, uh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. We're coming up at the end now. So I just want to thank both of you for coming on. I really believe in building envelope commissioning when it's done properly. What I cannot stand is when it's a paperwork exercise and people think they've done it. That drives me batshit crazy. So, you know, kudos to you for sweating them small details. Actually, well done. And keep doing what you're doing because you know what? The world needs more of this. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, gents. Thanks very much. Cheers. Okay, well, they were very interesting guys, man. Very interesting. I love what they're doing. I love their mission. Yeah, I mean, they're talking about a couple of practitioners, right? Yeah. They uh, roll up their sleeves and get dirty and do the stuff that needs to get done to make sure that, you know, buildings perform the way that you're supposed to perform. I love it. It's a dark art as well. It's such a specialism on a specialism, right? I mean, you know, no one has a car crash and says, get me a commission engineer. And even less people say, get me a building commission, build an envelope commission engineer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I love love to hear that they do so many mock-ups. And again, for our audience that's listening, you cannot undervalue the mock-up. Yeah. The mock-up is so important, and partic- and that's why I asked him at the end of the interview about advice to architects. You know, in terms of build, and I should have actually maybe a little bit more specific in terms of architectural design. Hmm. But when you get into complex geometries, that mock-up is everything. Yeah, in the UK, there is a bit of a culture on big prestigious jobs of doing what they call factory testing and mission critical stuff, and many times the envelope falls in that category, and they tend to do a mock-up for buildability, and then they wind up throwing water at it for a bit. That's culturally, that's quite not yeah. unusual. It's not usual, but it's not unusual, right? Yeah. But other countries I've not really seen that in. It goes in sometimes and then gets value engineered out, right, as a cost saving. Yeah. I really liked your comment about certifications are like weeds. I'm going to steal that one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and his one, sweat the small details, because that is the essence of enclosure design, right? Yeah. And construction. Come yeah. to that, right? You also talked about deprogramming people. I thought that was really good because, my God, you know, we work in an industry that is so tied into the past in terms of processes. Yeah. And it's just not functioning. Like, it, you know, and, and what happens, of course, is you get all of these people that started the processes, have grown up with the process, and then, of course, they teach the processes to the upcoming generation. Yeah. It's a bad habit that's got passed down from generation to generation to generation. It doesn't work. No. And, and, we, and you know what? And everybody knows it doesn't work. It's just, you know, it's, it's the old thing. Keep your eye, you know, I don't want to see about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear about it. This is just the way it is, and that's the way we're going to do it. That's got to stop. Yeah, that was really interesting about the legislation that's gone through on New York City of all places, where it's so hard to get anything done. Kudos to them for that. And I reckon that is where it's going to happen. It's almost going to be like a a revolution of the cities and your municipalities. They're going to take things into their own hands 
And they can respond to their electorate that way as well, right? If you've got people who are passionate about this, they can vote for that, right? To some degree. <laughs> you know what I love? I didn't actually say this. Just, well, it just came to me now. When California does stuff like what New York did, yeah. the rest of the continent goes, oh, it's just California doing their thing. You know, They'll yeah. get over it soon enough, right? When yeah. New Yorker does the same thing, it's like, holy crap. Yeah. Yeah, that, them boys are the money. What's going on? <laughs> same outcomes, you know, just one state has a history of being sort of out on the West Coast and they're going to do. But, you know, the reality is, is that when you get an entire state which represents the population of Canada or you get a city of New York which represents a third of the population of Canada, that's, you know, that's like 40 million people right there. And if they can do it, well, you know what? Other countries can do it. Other cities can do it. Other municipalities can do it. And it's like you said earlier when our guest from the Emirates. Oh, Saeed El Alaba. Saeed, yeah. Saeed. And I thought when you said that, when he, when he first said that, and then, of course, you brought it up several times that change is going to happen at the municipal level, that that was bang on advice. That was a good prediction on his behalf. But, you know, in America, when both California and New York do things, that tends to set, history tells you, people don't want to admit this, but history tells you that tends to roll through the rest of America over yep. a period of time, right? Yeah. It takes time, but it gets through. And really, that's what's happened. Where we are at the moment is California have, have been doing initiatives and passing laws. NYC are now doing it. You know, those are two significant economies in their own right. Yeah, you can't ignore them no. at all. You can and like you can, them and dislike them, but you can't ignore them. No, and what ends up happening with that case there is that you know, as more and more states start to adopt the, the philosophies that they, those two regions have, is that no one wants to be the last. Mm. You know, I mean, there are some states that you know they're going to just hold out and say, you know, no, it's not. We're not going to do that here. But eventually, the population of those holdouts starts to look at the the rest of the country and go, hang on a second here. Yeah. <laughs> this is America, yeah. you know, and why are we being anti-American here? Like, it's time to change the people at the top. Either start to toe the line and do what we need to do as a country, or you know what? You're out. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm optimistic in the long term, because I think baby boomers are going to pass up, pass. That's just demographics, right? Yep. And other people are going to come in with different value systems, and it's going to shift. The question yep. is the time, right? Does it shift yep. in time, I guess, is one of question but you know change yep. is awesome and i'm all for it yep okay man so that was good i am looking forward to getting some feedback on this and seeing what happens but that was a great one i really enjoyed it yeah always a pleasure okay man see you on the next one cheers you've been listening to the edifice complex podcast with adam muggleton and robert bean to access show notes for this episode visit edificecomplexpodcast.com Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? 
Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there.